You're listening to a teaching from Vintage Church LA. This week, we're hearing from a special guest speaker. Good morning, church. Let's grab a seat together this morning. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Johnny. If you don't know me, now you do. I'm one of the pastors here at Vintage. We're going to take an offering right now. If you're brand new, you do not feel obliged to give, pass the basket along. But for those of us that consider this place home, we're on the team, we're helping move the ball down the field. Um, We like to give back into God's kingdom. So let me pray and then baskets are going to come around. Heavenly Father, we thank you for everything you have given us, that every good and perfect gift comes from a perfect Father. And so God, we take all that you've blessed us with and you have blessed us richly. And we ask that you would do something wonderful with it as we give it back into your kingdom. So we love you, Jesus, and pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Those are coming around now. We're in a series on the book of Philippians going through. We're in week four, but we kind of are just hopping around within the book. So it's not moving through, you know, like how you would normally do it, like just verse by verse. We're just all over the place. But who was here for the first week when Jason Ballard came from Vancouver? Amazing. Okay. I was, I've been going back. I was on vacation for that one and got to watch it recently. And he did, Jason Ballard, he's a phenomenal preacher. He did this part of his sermon where he wrote like a version of the book of Philippians as if it was written by an imprisoned Gare. Gare's our senior pastor. If you don't know, it's not me. Um, he's currently traveling the world, literally doing ministry. And he wrote this, ver- Jason wrote this version of Philippians as if it was written by an imprisoned Gare writing back to us. And I like watch this part of his sermon and I'm just like crying at my desk. Like it was the most beautiful way of making this letter feel so real and relevant. I mean, it was like genius. It was like Gary writing, church, I've started three alphas in prison. It's going great. Lizzie's been telling me that you guys are holding faithful. To- I mean, it was like unbelievable. So if you haven't heard Jason's message and you don't understand the book of Philippians or you're not into it or you don't understand why I'm going to be all over the place today, go back and watch his message. It was amazing. But this morning, the church faces a problem in Los Angeles. It's not a new problem, not a unique problem, but it is our problem. Los Angeles is a post-Christian city with a non-Christian worldview, non-Christian values, and a culture in large parts that is unlike the kingdom of heaven. This means the church is a cultural minority, and it can feel like being a Christian is to become the other. And, in, and to face forms of cultural persecution and exclusion. But this is not the problem. The problem of the church in LA, and therefore the Christian in LA, is how do we respond to being a cultural minority? I see it like this. The problem of the church in LA risks two pitfalls, like two ditches on either side of a narrow road. The first pitfall is this to be staunchly committed to being countercultural to our city, so much so that we take a position of opposition to the very people we want to reach. And so our message is not received. The church becomes known for what it is against. It is seen as angry, mean-spirited, fearful, and controlling. The church in this position will become abrasive and often seek positions of political power so that it can use worldly authority to mandate Christian living. Are we here for this today? Are we ready for Because Because we can, I mean, we could get lunch if we want to, because this is heavy, this is big. 
if we're here for this, we're here for this. I see some of you nodding like, amen. Don't worry, I'm coming for you later. So like I got, I got, I'm just firing shots at everybody today. Pitfall number one is motivated usually by a desire to protect the bride of Christ and to defend the gospel, which is good. It's just not quite the correct method. The other ditch we risk falling into is to become like the culture of our city. And in doing so, we dilute and pollute our own message to where it is not different enough to say anything of value. The church makes an appeal to culture by accepting the ethics and morality of the world rather than that of Christ. In doing so, the church inadvertently becomes irrelevant, ineffective, and powerless. I told you I'm coming for everybody today. This is often motivated by a desire to be loving and accepting. It's just not quite the right method. This is not a new problem. Historically in the church, this is essentially boiled down to the tension between legalism and lawlessness. And the church in culture will often pendulum swing from side to side throughout history in reaction to itself, often overcorrecting from one ditch into an equal but opposite ditch. This is the problem that the church and therefore the modern Christian faces in Los Angeles. How do we avoid both pitfalls? How do we navigate both ditches and travel the winding and narrow path down the middle where the church is powerful without seeking power, loving without compromising, relevant but not abrasive, different but not combative, distinct but integrated? In other words, how do we become incarnational good news to a city? If only there were a book of the Bible written by a theological and pastoral genius where he specifically writes to a church in a non-Christian city facing the cultural pressure of being an unwanted minority in a progressive and hostile environment. If only. I guess we will just have to settle for Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. I'm being facetious. He starts in, in, Philippi, in, sorry, in Philippians chapter 1. Verse 27, Paul writes this, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Paul in the book of Philippians is concerned with how people live much more than what they believe. He kind of already assumes they know what to believe. This is an established church. There's a small section in chapter two where he sums up some great theology in this poem that was likely like a hymn that the early church would have sung. But other than that, he mostly instructs how to live in response to the pressures of the church and the culture that it exists within. He seems to trust that they know what to believe. This isn't the book of Romans where he lays out foundational theology. He's worried not that they don't believe the right things, but that what they believe won't convert itself into action represented in how they live. It is a major running theme in the book of Philippians. How do you live in a city that is hostile to your faith? And how do you joyfully thrive in the face of opposition and in the midst of suffering. Paul's answer to them and his instruction is holiness. 
conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. He expounds upon this idea in Philippians chapter 2, verse 14 through 16. He says to the church, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. Become blameless and pure, children of God without fault, then you will shine among them like the stars in the sky. In other words, there is an expected way for a person who has experienced the good news of Jesus to live, and that life is to be radically different than how the rest of the culture is living. The way that it will be different is that it will be radiantly good and pure so as to arrest the, tension of their city, the attention of their city in such a way that it has an impact upon them. Look at the calling here to shine like stars in the sky, like light in the darkness. This is a call to holiness, to holy living, and to be a holy people. Something apparently that Paul sees as so essential that he thinks it's essential to the point of being worth suffering and dying for. So maybe we need to make sure we know what we're talking about when we're talking about holiness. Because mostly, when I think of holiness, I get pictures of purity culture sermons at youth group, not our youth group, monks living in the desert, totally segregated from society, or guilt about not obeying the Christian rules enough. At best, maybe holiness is a sense of morality that I'm supposed to live, good old-fashioned moral living. But most of us raised in the church maybe know holiness only is the reason why we weren't allowed to go to the parties after prom and why mom never let us go to sleepovers. I think there's something bigger for us. Holiness in the Bible, are you willing to go here? We're going theology nerds today. We're gonna like big time theology nerds today. Holiness in the Bible has a multifaceted meaning and is usually used, especially in the Old Testament, to refer to God. In fact, it is perhaps the defining part of his nature. So holiness can be defined as this. Firstly, it is God's otherness. He is the uncreated one. He is not part of creation. He is other than it. Totally unique, different, set apart. He is the only one capable of creating beauty and life and goodness. And this sets him apart from any other thing. In fact, consecration or being set apart is an acceptable literal definition of the word holy. Secondly, holiness is God's total moral perfection. His holiness is his perfect goodness, especially related to him being not just good, but having a goodness that is pure and undefiled. The two definitions go together woven in a double helix. God is separate from all other things in his goodness. Not only is he unlike other things in his nature as God, he is specifically unlike them in that he is perfectly good while the rest of creation has become broken and corrupted by evil. God is so holy 
that he is A, set apart, and B, perfectly pure and good. Now, this is where it gets interesting. Because this God who is set apart and is perfectly good and perfectly pure is in love with his creation. He is in love with his children who are not set apart from evil and who are not perfectly pure and good and have, in fact, been ravaged by, corrupted by, and entangled with evil. The theologian and creator of the Bible Project, Tim Mackey, describes it like this. A helpful way to think about God's holiness is by using the sun as a metaphor. The sun is unique, at least within our solar system, and it's really powerful. It's the source of all this beautiful life on our planet. And so you could say that the sun is holy. You can actually take this metaphor even further in that the whole area around the sun is also holy because the closer you get to the sun, the more intense it gets. So that very power and goodness that generates all this life is also dangerous. The sun, if you get too close, will annihilate you. And in the same way, there's this paradox at the heart of God's own holiness. Because if you're impure, his presence is dangerous to you. Not because it's bad, but because it's so good. In essence, God's goodness is so pure that it cannot tolerate the presence of non-goodness. This creates a problem for a God who wants to be with, have relationship with, and enjoy the presence of people who are full of non-goodness. God goes out of his way to solve this problem. Take a journey with me through scripture. I told you we're going big brain theology nerds today. You're gonna leave this place with a doctorate, I swear. Okay, in the book of Isaiah, we get this famous picture of Isaiah the prophet in the throne room of God. He comes into God's presence and he's rightly scared because he knows the sin of his own heart and the sin of his actions. He says, woe to me, I'm a man of unclean lips. But an angel of God in this vision comes up to him, touches his lips with a hot coal and says to him, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Which is another way of saying he has been made holy or pure. Which at the time is a radical development. It's a radical change in this part of scripture because the previously established pattern from the Hebraic law, which we know as the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament, is that when you touch something unclean or impure, it transfers its impurity to you. Picture a child who stuck their hand in peanut butter. When they go to touch you, you don't take the peanut butter off their hand, they put the peanut butter on you. Here we have the opposite. Isaiah, who is impure, is touched by the coal, representing God's holiness, and he is not destroyed by it. He's transformed by it and made holy. Fast forward with me to the book of Ezekiel. Are we still tracking? Isaiah to Ezekiel, another Old Testament prophet, and he has a vision, again, of the temple of God. Same place where Isaiah was, only this time Ezekiel's there, and he's on the outside of the temple at the entrance. It is the palace of God's holy presence. And it says that Ezekiel sees a river of water flowing out of the temple, emphasis on the out of the temple, into the earth. Everywhere this river goes, it brings forth life 
and goodness and beauty and health. It runs through a dead and dry desert and suddenly trees and plants sprout up. What's dead comes back to life. This river of life runs into the Dead Sea and purifies it. The book of Ezekiel in his vision, we get this picture of the holy presence of God represented by the river coming out of his temple and touching the world. And when the holiness of God touches the world, again, it does not destroy it, it transforms it. What we are seeing through these prophetic visions is that the holiness of God is good. The holiness of God has nothing to do with evil or sin, but that the holiness of God has this incredible transformative capacity where it is able to come into contact with what is broken, corrupted, and twisted, and is able to heal, restore, and redeem it to the point where it can bring dead things back to life. So far, as we track through scripture, all theoretical, prophetic visions and dreams, until Jesus. Jesus shows up in the biblical narrative and he starts to live out the prophetic visions of Isaiah and Ezekiel. He claims to be the human embodiment of God's holiness and then proceeds to go around touching people who are ritually unclean, people with leprosy, bleeding women, and dead bodies. None of them transfer their uncleanliness to him. Instead, he heals or resurrects all of them. But more than just being healings and resurrection stories, these are stories of God taking something that is seen as completely unholy, touching it and making it holy. A leper, a bleeding person, and a dead body would all have been considered in Hebraic law to be fathers of uncleanliness. The Hebrew phrase is av hatuma. I told you, you're getting, a, you're getting a Bible lesson today. Av hatuma, av meaning father, hatuma meaning av ritual and cleanness. Dead people, dead bodies, bleeding people, people with leprosy. These are considered to be the highest first level grade of uncleanliness. They are sources like wells of dirt and disease. They are seen as the most unclean thing in the entire world. Yet, Jesus lovingly and tenderly reaches out in intimacy and empathy to interact with what is unclean and transform it with holiness. God himself literally reaches out his hand and touches unclean, damaged, and broken people. Jesus has the capacity to make unclean people clean, to make sinners into saints, to make unholy into holy, to make what's dead come back to life. Are you with me? Come on. This is the progression through scripture. We now know that Jesus has done all of this for us through the cross where he was walking around literally touching unclean people through the cross. He has atoned for our sin and touched all of our hearts and made each of our hearts clean and pure. For what end? Jesus also taught, this theology is expounded upon by the Apostle Paul in all of the New Testament writings, that the followers of Jesus would be temples of a spirit of holiness and that out of them would flow rivers of living water. And here's where our biblical narrative begins to tie together. We 
who have been made holy by God are called to become the very temple that his holy presence lives in. And like the vision in Ezekiel, the holy presence or spirit of holiness or Holy Spirit is going to pour out of our lives and into our city, bringing life and refreshing. The implication is this. Followers of Jesus are sources of holiness who carry the holy presence of God into the world so that it can be transformed. As God's holiness in us spills out and touches the people of our city, it will transform culture and the people around us into something good and healthy and prosperous. This is holiness. Holiness for your life is a central an essential part of the plan for the redemption of all the earth. It is to redeem you to be holy from the inside out so that you may go out into the world as a leaky vessel of God's holiness. It is the beautiful picture of the reversal of Av Hatuma, where we were once wells, fathers of uncleanliness, running around, contaminating the world, destroying everything we touched. We become temples of holiness, walking the earth, spreading life and blessing wherever we go. But, and it's a big but, we can hallelujah this vision all we want. Yes and amen, more Lord. But like anything in the kingdom of God, when God starts something in us, which in this case is him making us holy vessels of his presence, we then have an active role in participating with what He is continuing to do, which in this case means living holy lives. Or in the words of Paul, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Simply put, God has cleaned up your life so that your body can be a temple that his presence can live in. You have a responsibility to keep your temple clean. If we do not live holy lives, then we cut our own purpose on the earth off at the knees. Not only do we become inadequate vessels of God's presence, if you do not live a holy life, then you are no different than the world. If you are no different than the world, then you have no redemptive holiness to impart to it. You cannot give that which you do not possess. If we long to impart goodness and beauty and majesty and purity and abundant, vibrant, explosive life onto the earth, we must possess something that is set apart and differentiated from that of the world. You must be set apart in holiness so that in the words of Paul, you can be blameless and pure, without fault, so that you may shine like stars in the sky to impact a generation that does not know God. Because almost inexplicably, Christ has chosen to manifest himself and his holiness through us to the world. Let me give you a picture of this. If this is, I'm a youth pastor at heart, was for a long time. I have many brushes in my house. One of my brushes is a multi-purpose brush. It's for sweeping all manner of crumbs and dog hair off the ground. It's for brushing the dirt off the front step. It's for breaking up spider webs. It's for whacking bugs on the ceiling. This brush is not set apart for anything. I have another brush in my house. 
my toothbrush. You see where this is going. It is set apart for one singular and very specific purpose. If I came home one day and my, wife, and my kids said to me, hey dad, mom asked us to clean the bathroom. We used your toothbrush to clean the grout in the tile around the base of the toilet. It was perfect for it. Wrong, it was able. It was able to clean the grout around the base of the toilet. However, it was not made for it. It was made for a specific purpose. Just because you are able to do something does not mean it is right for you to do it. That brush has been set apart for one thing and one thing only. And because of its purpose, there is a cleanliness demanded of it that forbids it from being used for any other purpose. Now that it has been used for a different purpose, I actually can't use it to brush my teeth. It needs to be made new in order for it to be used for its purpose. We are toothbrushes for God. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> That's bad, forget that part. Edit, get that part out of the edit. There is a calling of holiness on your life that it be set apart. Not set apart from interacting with the world. Lord knows, I'm British, I know that toothbrushes come into contact with unholy teeth, okay? <laughs> But the behavior that we engage in is to be that of holy behavior and holy living. The world, a generation of lost and hurting people need you to live a holy life. It matters. It matters for your own health and your own prosperity of your own life, but it matters even more because it is your holiness that is the defining feature of a person radically transformed by a good and loving God. And it is the essential ingredient for your life to actually impact someone else as it turns you into a conduit of God's unraveling grace. Church. This is how we're supposed to live. This is how we're supposed to respond to the problem we are facing. Just as the church in Philippi, we are faced with an almost insurmountable cultural tide that is not only turned away from God, but against his bride. And the call to action for us is to respond with holiness, not compromise, certainly not opposition, but holiness. Some of you guys were at Focus this past summer, this past May. We were, went up to the mountains, the whole church in May to get away and seek God. And we had some guests out. We had Tom and Sarah Jackson out from England and they did a seminar. Who was at that seminar? Hardly anybody, amazing. I mean, there was a lot of people, but there's a lot of people in this room. Tom and Sarah are amazing. Tom leads out a social transformation ministry across the whole of the UK. And he gave a seminar on what it looks like. It was unbelievable. Tom, right at the end of his seminar, shared a dream, like a literal dream he had when he was a young man in the early 90s. He had a dream of a great river that was flowing with immense strength. And this river represented the course of culture, the progression and movement of the culture of the world. The water level was rising and the river flowing more and more aggressively. And Tom saw a bunch of people in his dream representing the church, trying to raise a flagpole in the middle of the river against the flow of water. They were trying with all their might to put up the flagpole 
to show that they were taking a stand against culture. It was a fruitless and foolish endeavor. With the church not only losing this battle in the dream, but also becoming defined by their opposition rather than their love or their goodness. In the dream, suddenly a bunch of people from the church began to swim to the side of the river. On the banks of the river, they began to build something completely different. A city of insurmountable beauty, nothing like the culture, but defined by goodness and righteousness and purity and wholeness and health and all the fruit of the Spirit. And they built the most compelling vision of the good life that the people of the world began to step out of the river of culture and join the church who had set themselves apart. As I listened to Tom at Focus recount this dream that he'd had many years ago, I was captured and captivated by it. This has been written on the top right-hand corner of the dry erase board in my office for about a year. I have a picture, it's my literal, that has been a phrase sectioned off, never to be erased on the corner says this, a cultural renaissance that awakens the city to the beauty of Jesus. I think this is what God wants to do in LA, to see the church, AKA the Christians, all over this sprawling metropolis, live such holy and set apart lives. Set apart not meaning separate and uninvolved, but set apart meaning living completely differently such set apart and holy lives that we begin to shift the culture of the city, that we impact the culture of the, of the city, that we unleash the untapped potential of a creative force of holy artists, architects, mechanics, moms, teachers, investment bankers, line cooks, real estate developers, entrepreneurs, students, Uber drivers, actors, writers, filmmakers, musicians, retirees, and athletes, and maybe even pastors into LA so that it may be redeemed and transformed for the glory of Jesus. That's the vision. A cultural renaissance that awakens the city to the beauty of Jesus. Let me tell you what I really mean by that. Culture. This is art, science, architecture, business, medicine, education, entertainment, banking, entrepreneurship, rhetoric and language, hospitality, earth and soul care, parenting, sex, marriage, friendship, the justice system, social responsibility, diversity, and how we treat and integrate and care for all people. That's culture. Renaissance. Do you know the etymology of this word? It's a French word coming from Latin roots, re meaning again or to do again, essence meaning birth or to be born, meaning renaissance literally means to be born again. God is longing for the culture of our world, the way we live and rule this earth, the things we make and create and the way we relate to each other to be born again. What it's going to take is a lot of people living born again lives that are so beautifully awake to the good news of Jesus that it makes them live differently. But please, church, hear me. Holy living requires that we actually take the ethic of Jesus Christ seriously when it comes to generosity and money 
and sex and marriage and prayer and Sabbath and fasting and worship and caring for the orphans and the widows and loving our neighbor and our speech and what we allow our eyes to see and what we allow our hearts to chase. Hear me, church, with all the love in my heart for all of us, myself included. In fact, let me just talk about me for a moment. I know that I fall short when it comes to holy living because I do not always do the things that Jesus tells me to do. When you discern in your own heart, is that true for you also? There's an old quote that I love. Faith is acting like God is telling the truth. Maybe another way of saying that is obedience is acting like God is telling the truth. What would happen if the church, all of us, were obedient to the way of living that Jesus modeled for us and taught in scripture? Would we maybe see our lives purified from the inside out and see radical inner healing, wholeness, and peace wash over us in waves each and every morning? Would we maybe get a cultural renaissance that awakens Los Angeles to the beauty of Jesus as our city transforms before our very eyes. Let me end with this. I wanna give you a framework for holy decision-making because this is all great theory, but it's gotta change the way we live. I acknowledge we get into problems when we try to oversimplify the way of Jesus and how to interpret and practice the instructions of the New Testament writers. It's not always, e not always as easy as read it and go do it. We are interpreting and contextualizing an ancient and complex living, breathing, historical document. And when we do it wrong, we hurt people and enslave ourselves to a yoke that is not from Jesus. I cannot just teach you exactly what to do in each and every circumstance. It's much more biblical to teach a framework for how you can learn to discern what is right. Remember the words of Paul in Philippians 1, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless. So maybe this is helpful. Because a lot of Christians I know seem to not have a framework for healthy, holy decision-making. And if we don't have a framework for decision-making, we'll be led by the trends of the world and the foolishness of our own flesh. So, if your heart is set on the beauty of Jesus and you are thrilled by a vision of seeing a world awakened to it and you are committed to a lifelong pursuit of holiness, then this is for you. In your life, in all things, follow these steps. Number one, when making decisions, we ask, God, are you in this? That is to seek God in prayer. We have a living, relational, listening and hearing and speaking God. And when we do things, we are called to invite him into it and say, God, are you in this? Are you part of this? And are you with me? He will answer. Jesus himself says, I only do what I see the Father doing. Apparently there was constant consultation between him and the Father about how he should live. The same is true for you. But because we're not always great 
at you know, interpreting the voice of God. We sometimes get it wrong. Secondly, we ask God, what have you already said about this? This is to seek God in scripture. Second Timothy 3 verse 16 says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. We come before God and say, God, what are you doing? Are you in this? Are you with me? And then we double check against scripture. If you're wondering what God's will is, he probably wrote it down. Thirdly, we ask, what does my wise biblical counsel say about this? This is to seek God in community. Because sometimes it's hard to hear the voice of God and sometimes it's hard to interpret scripture. And so sometimes you need to ask somebody else. And this is not the same as going on Twitter to consult the Theo bros. And it's not the same as going to brunch with the girls. This is to go to someone older and wiser than you and say, I'm unsure, what do you think? And if all of that fails, if all of that feels like you're still unsure, if at the end of it all, maybe the words of Paul at the end of his letter to the Philippians will help. Church, will you stand with me as I read it? Paul writes, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. So this morning, you are temples of the Holy Spirit. You are set apart for a purpose. So this morning we're gonna pray, Holy Spirit come. Holy Spirit come. With the holy presence of Jesus, come into our hearts and make them clean. Lord, by your blood, would you wash away the impurity and the filth that accumulates over time? Holy Spirit, would you clear out the idols, the foolish ways of thinking and living? And God, in all your grace and your mercy, would you fill us up that we could live lives that are worthy of the gospel of Jesus? that grab the attention of our city, that the beauty of your face would be revealed. So Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, would you use us? Would you lead us? Would you guide us into all righteousness? Holy Spirit, come. as we continue to pray and worship this morning. Our prayer team is gonna be here at the front. They would love to pray with you.
I'd love to pray with you about anything, but I feel maybe there's some people that are like, I gotta get something off my chest, the stuff I gotta confess. Man, these guys are like vaults of, of, of confidentiality. If you need to pray and confess and get your heart clean, go for it. But you are holy people set apart to worship and glorify him. So let's do that. Thanks for joining us for another week. We'd love to connect with you at one of our gatherings or online at vintagechurchla.com.